All right, so today we are going to continue in our eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series. You can ignore the outline in front of you, uh, except for Roman numeral one lists the eight uh, essential elements that we are covering, and number seven is the one we're currently on. So uh, number seven instead of number eight should be in bold print. And we're covering the pattern of the first five steps into the kingdom of Christ. And as we're going to see later in the teaching, if you were to go through some of the scriptures listed there in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10, and the last part of Acts 18 flowing into Acts 19, you would uh, see uh, how in the book of Acts about five times the Holy Spirit chose through Luke to kind of do a close-up of a number of people coming to Christ in all that happened in the biblical world when a person started their Christian walk. And we want to compare that with how we do it today. Because, uh, you know, we're living in a time when there's probably never been, uh, since, uh, since the days of Jesus' first advent, that is his first coming, uh, when Jesus came the first time, uh, the people of God were living in a time when they had a very uh, studious, serious approach to Scripture, but for a number of reasons, their uh, viewpoints of Scripture were so blinding to them that when God himself was in their midst, they couldn't recognize him. And in fact, killed him thinking they were doing service to God. And I believe we're in the same exact place in evangelical fundamentalist Christianity today. I think that Jesus would not be welcome uh, at our churches today, nor nor recognized, nor liked. So uh, what, you know, in a lot of ways the New Testament is about, God always takes a remnant of people out of his old people. So Christianity started as a Jewish movement. Remember when Elijah was in a time of great darkness in Israel and he's the fountainhead of the prophets and he's calling uh, the people of Israel back to covenant faithfulness to Yahweh and, and, and so forth. And uh, he's discipling Elisha and he's uh, you know, reminding Israel of the law and of, of faithfulness to their covenant husband, which they were committing adultery against and so forth. Elisha, at a certain point, when uh, after he had killed the prophets of Baal, and then had uh, you know tur- gone from uh, from courageous to running from Jezebel, kind of interesting how strong the anointing of the spirit was on Jezebel that it, that Elijah cowered in front of her, and uh, and and ran. And he's uh, when he's hiding out, he complains to the Lord, Lord, they've torn down your altars. They've persecuted your prophets, and I alone am left. And if you remember what the divine response to him, God says, I have reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So God will always have and is always calling a remnant to become faithful and to be becoming Christ-like and to be in the center of real scriptural interpretation and real scriptural experience and so forth. And... um, What we're called to do always is to rethink or rediscover biblical Christianity. Every generation is called to that. 
and to restore biblical Christianity in the church, which is supposed to be the, the pillar and the support of the truth. Often, uh, like if you look at our ideas about altar calls and eternal security and lots of things today, we have often become the, the pillar and support of deception. And so, um, what we're trying to do in this particular uh, element seven is we're trying to build on the idea that there are patterns in Scripture. Exodus 20, for instance, verses 8 and 9, God says to Moses, Be sure that you build everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And what he's building is a tabernacle. And as we looked at last week, and when we're, we're going to be dealing with the promises of God today when, when we do get the real outlines. And uh, hopefully we'll get through that, and this won't be a total review. Um, boy, I was looking forward to that message. We might, might have to get that next week, I guess. We'll, we'll see. But um, when you deal with the promises of God, you have to kind of look at the whole Bible as one long covenant purpose. God had an eternal plan or an eternal decree and that decree includes his promises and his promises are based on his swearing the truth of them not based on the people of God's ability to perform them over and over and over again the Bible presents the people of God as failing in the promise yet God being faithful to who he is and to what his purpose is okay so um you know, um, the remnant that God always called is always called not just to return to Yahweh and be faithful, but they're called to birth a new generation of, of, of Christ followers and to uh, disciple them. They're called to be fruitful, to multiply, and subdue the earth. And the number one issue, as we talked a little bit about on Friday night, is what kind of fruit you become, because you will impart who you are. So if you remember Jesus, one of his confrontations of the Pharisees was that you travel throughout the whole Roman Empire to make one proselyte, and when you do, you turn them into twice, twice as much a son of hell as yourself. And in many ways, that's kind of what uh, fundamentalist Christianity has become, as well as the modernist liberal side of Christianity. And neither, neither the liberals uh, and modernists, uh, mainstream Protestants who are very much like the uh, Sadducees, nor the conservative uh, Protestants who are in many cases very much like the Pharisees in their approach to God, neither of them liked God or Jesus. They had a type of religion, as Paul t gives, Paul credits them in Romans 10, he says, I bear witness uh, that they have a, a type of zeal, but not in accordance with knowledge or truth or reality, because not knowing about God's righteousness, they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God, uh, but pursued it as if it was by performance-based works, right? And uh, the, the audacity of grace is grace is something you have to submit yourself to. Because grace basically says you're a dirtbag worm, <laughs> uh, blankety blank, good for nothing, 
so forth, and, uh, and God chose to love you anyway. And he chose to draw you into his kingdom, and he chose to convict you of your sin, and he chose to draw you to himself and to grant you repentance and create in you a complete new heart and a complete new life. And there was nothing in you that was deserving of that. Nothing. Not one little iota. It wasn't because you were born into the right family or, or you know, had the right kind of education or the right kind of looks or the right kind of financial status. Or not. There's no reason except God's merciful choice in grace. So, do we have enough outlines for everyone or more is coming? Okay, so how many people have the real outline now? All right, so I'm going to try to transition into that. It, your outline should say at the top, element 7, letter O, small point C, pattern of the five first steps in the kingdom of Christ, step three continued, and then on, we're co at the same time coterminously doing the Baptizing the Holy Spirit series 2017 version, which I believe this is around message 22 or 23 in that series. Because, uh, of course, some of them, like 12, 12 had an A, 12B, 12C, 12D, and 12E. So we're on chapter 13C today uh, called Pentecost, Pinnacle, Plenitude, and Pledge of God's Purpose and Promise Continued. So looking at uh, Roman numeral 1 tells you the eight elements. Roman numeral 2 gives you the first five steps of entering the kingdom that I hope all of you have memorized by now. And what's ironic to me is no matter how much we teach this, you talk when you get, be, get alone with various brothers and sisters in the Lord and talk to them, we have sometimes people who've been here three years, five years, even 10 and 12 years that haven't gone through all these five steps. Don't let your Christian life get be like you're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing that. I'm, I'm thankful that everyone used chlorine bleach to watch down the building, and it looks really nice. But get yourself through the first five steps. Stay focused on that. Study those things. Be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Be delivered from demons. Be, have inner healing and mental healing and so forth. It start with uh, talking to John and Emily about a sozo, and, and that would be a, a first step in preparing for inner healing and deliverance. Um, and you would get some inner healing and deliverance through a sozo or two. Uh, and, you know, talk, know, know what we mean by entering a New Testament lifestyle. Which, of course, like the cross, always has two components. Remember, the horizontal bar of the cross would fall down if there wasn't a vertical bar. Always remember that. And the vertical bar it starts with reconciliation to God in the new birth and being filled with the Holy Spirit in, in regeneration. And it continues by daily seeking to know the voice and presence of God. And God requires holiness for that. Like if you have besetting sins that are keeping you from knowing God, do something about that. Flee youthful lust. You know, in modern equivalents, part of how you'd have to, like let's say you have a pornography problem, then get rid of your computer and your smartphone. <laughs> like, do whatever it takes to win. You know, uh, if you can't uh, get along with your mother, grow up and get a job. <laughs> and get an apartment. And forgive your mother from your apartment. 
or whatever. <laughs> do, what, do something to follow Christ. And don't let yourself be kept from following Christ. So uh, anyway, anyway, so on, in terms of these five steps, we're kind of looking at, in a very detailed way, we're kind of looking at what it means to be baptized in the Spirit. Looking at Roman numeral 2b, I want to remind us that Jesus called uh, the promise of the Father, he equivalent, makes that equivalent to being baptized in the Holy Spirit quite clearly by the actual wording of Acts 1, 4, and 5, which we've covered a number of times. So uh, two weeks ago, we started looking at uh, the fact that this, this promise, uh, that is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, is for everyone called to follow Christ. It's not a mark of maturity any more than getting a Bible is a mark of maturity. It's a tool to get started. Okay, and that's why all the examples in the book of Acts that, we, that you go through, people received being baptized in the Holy Spirit in the first hours to days that they were Christians. And we'll sometimes have people, you know, two months, six months, two years, ten years. You know, unfortunately, there are, are thousands of American Christians who don't even know about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Thousands. Um, in Luke 9, Jesus says that this promise is for you and your children. And, uh, and he promises that if you're a child of God, that he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. I often tell people, you know, we had a number of people, I think John Gray and Deanna and Catherine shared their testimony of getting baptized in the Spirit. Of course, we have a a fairly long version of Beth uh, Kariuki's testimony in getting baptized in the Spirit on our, on our website. And we often encourage people to listen to these testimonies. Myself, I got baptized in the Holy Spirit when I was on my first time through the New Testament, and I hadn't even quit drugs yet. In fact, I doubt that I would have succeeded in quitting drugs without the power of the Holy Spirit. So... Um, it's not a mark of having arrived. It's a deposit of God's grace that enables you to get filled with the Spirit again and again and again so that you, because you need the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, you need the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you into truth, you need the Holy Spirit to motivate you to seek God, the Holy Spirit came to bear witness of Jesus. You can only know the Lord by the Holy Spirit. You know, in the church today, lots of talk about the Father, as there should be, lots of talk about the Son, but you've got to understand what we covered in the first few messages of this series. God does everything he does by the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son live in heaven. And on occasion, like, like God did with Paul, who was a very special calling, Jesus appeared to Paul. And I think there have been realistic testimonies in church history where Jesus has appeared to other people. However, God does what he does by the Holy Spirit. And so all the spiritual warfare in the whole world is about keeping you from the Holy Spirit. Keeping you in habits that the Holy Spirit can't dwell with. Keeping you from seeking the Holy Spirit. Keeping you from being baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
All the spiritual warfare in your life is to keep you from getting baptized in the Holy Spirit and once baptized in the Holy Spirit. That is Satan's will for you. And I'm always amazed that Christians allow Satan's will to prevail in their life uh, when it's really not, it doesn't, you know, violent men enter the kingdom of God by force. You have to get a little violent with yourself. If you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for his sake, you'll find it. And, you know, things like the Holy Spirit and getting baptized in the Holy Spirit and getting a prayer language, these aren't according to the natural religion of man. As John's been pointing out in his Galatians series, the, the whole legalism of the Galatians and their performance base was all rooted in their fear of man. And so uh, I'd encourage you, make sure you go through these five steps And the reason we recommend uh, having someone take you through the outlines and reading a few books, we're living in a time when Western people have been brainwashed in an incredibly skeptical, cynical, natural-minded spirit. Whenever a culture's in advanced decline, cynicism begins to pray, prevail in that culture. And we're in a very advanced stage of decline in Western culture today. And so you have, been, you have been raised in an atmosphere of skepticism and doubt. And you don't come to God expecting powerful things to happen. So, uh, let's get into this. Um, so now, let's get, do I have the right? Okay, so now... Um, Flip over to the back page. Last week we looked at all the promises of God, our one promise, one God, one Bible, one author, one message, one eternal decree. And we looked at 2 Corinthians 1.20 in three translations. So one says all, one says as many as, and the other one says every one of the promises of God are yes in, in Christ. Now, that word promise is epinet, how am I supposed to say it again? Epangalia, epan, wait, Epangalia. Uh, thank you, Deanna, for looking that up for me this week. Epangalia, announcements, uh, pledges, guarantees, especially a divine assurance of good or favor. We're, as we're going to see when we get down a little further, for instance, 2 Corinthians 5 5 tells us that we were filled with the Holy Spirit of promise or pledge. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says that. And a pledge or a down payment, any of anyone who's bought a car on payments or a house on payments, or if you're in business, machinery on payments, uh, which I've been in that business, uh, th thankfully phasing out of completely, uh, for, I don't know, 25 years now. We don't do deals with no money down. <laughs> Right, Because we want the person to have some skin in the game, so to speak. We want them to have some, we want them to know they're serious. And you, get, you know you're serious when you get an earnest money check. Now in real estate today, it can be as low as 500 or 1,000 because it's just a token. It's just a vestige of former things. But it used to be you had to put like 5 or 10% of the price of the house down to, uh, to buy a house or something. And uh, Roy Hall was here last week, and he said, you know, when they, he sells air conditioning contracts, they try to get 30% down. 
because they don't want to get the equipment, show up in the job site, so forth, and halfway through have the guy go, nah, it's just kidding. <laughs> right? So the dealer doesn't let you take the car off the lot until there's been some money down and there's been contracts signed and they got you. <laughs> and they got you and you got the keys <laughs> and the title. <laughs> In the, in, and if you financed it, then there's someone else who has a first lien and, and maybe a second lien position on, on that title, right? So what God is actually saying in 2 Corinthians 5, 5, and in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, when you're regenerated, you get a deposit of the Holy Spirit. When you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you get a further deposit of the Holy Spirit. And this is a foretaste of the powers of the age to come, as Hebrews 6, 4 and 5 tells us. You're getting a part of the temple, the sanctuary, the very presence of God, because God's eternal purpose from all outside and above time, the reason he created time, the reason he created the time-space continuum in the physical universe was to create an earth to bring the powerful presence of God, which is so permeating in heaven that there's no need for a light because the Lamb of God is the light. And there's a presence of God in, in glory everywhere, you know, like, like it was when Moses filled the, finished building the tabernacle at the end of Exodus in chapter 40, starting about verse 34 through verse 40. After he builds everything according to the pattern, and the priests are dedicating the temple, because it was the pattern that God had shown him, because they built it according to the pattern and not according to man's ways, the glory of God filled the temple so much, it says the priest couldn't even stand to minister. And we have a better covenant. We should have meetings where when we're worshiping, people are getting on their face. People who don't know God are converted. I remember being in a worship meeting with a young lady who had been brought up quite purposely by her parents to be a lesbian, she was a drug addict, and she had never heard anything about Christianity, ever. And she was 13 or 14 years old, and she was in, the, in her a worship meeting for uh, the second time. She'd never been to any church before that. And she said to me after the meeting, I don't know who it is you guys worship, but I know it's the real God of the universe, and I want him. So... Uh, that is what we should expect when, we, when John stands up here to lead us in worship on Sunday mornings and Friday nights and, and at these little prayer meetings throughout the week. We should expect the manifest presence of God in such a way that people break down weeping and people get healed and people prophesy. The Lord has spoken. Who can help but prophesy? And the only hindrance is not what God wants to do, but it's our level of yieldedness and our level of faith. That's the hindrance. The problem is in your set. You know, like the TV goes, you know, temporary problems or whatever. And the problem is not in your set. The problem is in our set. And so what does God want to do? He graciously wants to help us change the set. That would be us. Okay? So the whole message of the Bible 
Today in evangelical circles, you hear that the message of the Bible is about redemption. But actually, that's a subset of the message of the Bible, an important step. But it's not even close to the most important part of the Bible. It's a step on a way to a journey. That's like saying, you know, like Tim lives in Huber Heights, used to live up by Huber Heights. And so the most important thing uh, is Smithville Road. Well, he might need to go through Smithville Road, but there's more parts of the journey than Smithville Road. He doesn't just drive up and down Smithville Road wondering why he doesn't get to Huber Heights. <laughs> right? You know, so uh, to think that the Bible is all about redemption is about, like saying, school is all about learning your ABCs. You have to have the ABCs and the phonics rules and so forth to start making words and learn to read. We're not saying that we can just skip that and go to advanced vocabulary and start reading college-level books when you're a three-year-old. But that's not where you stop. We don't just go, oh, my kid learned in the alphabet and the the sounds, and and so... She's pretty well educated now. Thank thank the Lord. (laughs) Let's stop there. So all of God's promises, all of them, flow through uh, redemption. They throw through Jesus Christ, but they end up with Jesus Christ as the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. He's called that six times in the New Testament. And because God's purpose in getting you baptized in the Holy Spirit is to begin to turn you into the temple of the living God. And because of the finished work of Christ, when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, you don't just individually, but 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. When you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, you in this mystical sense become one with the temple and sanctuary of God in actual concrete reality. And you don't have to wait till the temple is completely rebuilt and all the repairs are done, thankfully, because it's been finished in Christ. If God was waiting to fill me more with his Holy Spirit till I was the best Christian on the planet, sorry for y'all. <laughs> you know, I mean, that would be miserable to say to a parent. Now, there is a relationship between true humility and true holiness and, and that hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you can't do the behaviors that grieve the Holy Spirit and stay flowing in the power of the Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, when you are walking right with God, you walk right with God by the power of his grace and by the power of his resurrection, not by self-performance power. And it's not just about your individual encounter with the Holy Spirit. It's about a corporate community way of life. That's why part of the reason churches are so dry today is because uh, most Christians underestimate the Lord's Day and what should be done on the Lord's Day. I really encourage you to read Douglas Wilson's book called, uh, what's it called again? Uh, a Primer on Reformation, right? Worship and Reformation. And uh, that will, that's probably the best book we have. Uh, Peter Lighthart's book is the second best book we have on what should happen on the Lord's Day. However, I would say he doesn't make the case strong enough for why the Lord's Day is important because he's writing to a bunch of people who already know that and already experienced that. And today, 
99% of Bible-believing Christians underestimate the Lord's Day and, and miss the Lord's Day because it was raining or it was snowy that day. or You know, the sun was in my eye. I, I don't know if they're... I wasn't sure if they got the air conditioner fixed yet. So. My kid had baseball practice. You know, wow. If my kid had baseball practice, I'd say, I'm, we're going to look for another team. I'm not going to miss the Lord's Day for, for your cultural humanism. But beyond that, it's also about what we live day to day and week to week together in community. It has to be. The Holy Spirit didn't come to dwell just with individuals. He came to dwell in living stones made into a temple. Now, let's look a little bit uh, at all the promises um, in the Bible because we're trying to work toward this all these P's, Pentecost, Pinnacle, Plenitude, Pledge, Purpose, and Promise. And we're going to close with that. So let's go up one uh, on your outline about halfway down on the second page where it says the promise is reviewed. Let's, uh, I'm going to actually use an old-fashioned hard Bible. Whoa, <laughs> that's radical. Uh, the kind you turn that you have to hold together with packaging tape. Um, isn't that a beautiful, nice Bible? High class. Uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, outside of the usual suspects, if, like if you're on the leadership team, you can't answer this question. Let's put it that What is that? Does anyone know what that passage is called? There's a name for that passage. No. You're on the leadership team. <laughs> My wife's like, I know. No one knows outside that's not on the leadership team. It's called the proto-evangel. It's the first, the proto meaning the, the prototype or the fourth uh, evangel, the first announcement of the gospel. Okay, it's, it's one of the most important passages in all scripture. And most people know the name of it. In old times, every like if we were in a church, a Bible-leaving church 40 or 50 years ago, even the sec, you know, second graders would know that. Okay, proto, it's just that we don't study as much these days. Uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman, right? So God is prophesying to the serpent. In between your seed and her seed, who is her seed? Christ, okay? And he shall bruise you on the head, right? If you're going to kill a snake, you need to crush the head or break the head off, right? And he shall bruise you on the head head and you shall bruise him on the heel speaking of Christ uh, being afflicted right the first guy I ever led to the Lord from uh, Africa was a Nigerian guy that I'm still friends with on Facebook named Uum Johnson and Uum uh, uh, if you know anything about African culture African culture is not anti-supernatural and skeptical like western culture so he related a story of his father was the first one to come to Christ in their village. And when he came to Christ in their village, the witch doctor was very, very upset because witch doctors are, of course, filled with demons and oppose Christ, just like Janus and Jammers oppose Moses and so forth. There has always one of the major themes of the Bible is there is a people of God 
And there's a people of the enemy and the evil one, and the people of the evil one always persecute and hinder and try to, to stop the purposes of God, which are wrapped up in the people of God. That's a major theme of the Bible, all through the Bible. You should know that and be looking for that. Two people groups all through the Bible, those who follow God and those who don't. Those who don't follow God try to divide mankind over gender, race, nationality, age, and so forth. But that's because those who don't follow God are filled with enmity towards God and themselves and therefore their fellow man. And they hate each other for any and every reason. You know, in Africa, the pygmies and the, and the uh, Watusi tribes hated each other because one was short and one was tall. And they killed each other over that. People have killed each other over, you know, having attached or detached earlobes and big noses over small noses. <laughs> you know, I'd be in trouble with the big nose group. But uh, <laughs> fellow big nosers unite. But... Uh, <laughs> Fall, but the truth of the matter is there's really just two people in the earth, those who love and follow God and those who don't. And we see that right there in the Proto-Evangel. Okay, now, in Genesis 12, for example, I'm just going to read some of the most important, like five of the most important promises out of hundreds. Genesis 12, a promise that is repeated three times to Abraham, then it's repeated to Isaac, then it's repeated to uh, Jacob, who becomes Israel, several times, all the way through to, to uh, given to David and so forth. Now the Lord said to Abram, who hadn't become Abraham yet, go forth from your country and for your, from your relatives and from your father's house. Now it's important to understand, people mistakenly say that Abram was an idol-worshiping pagan and he was leaving his pagan father. That's not true. There was a God line and, and a non-God line throughout all of Scripture. And the God line uh, originally was in Abel, and Cain killed Abel. So God gave Adam and Eve another son, Seth, and the God line was in Seth. And all the great characters uh, like Lamech and, and Methuselah and Noah come through that Seth line. And Abraham's father was a Yahweh father. And he was called by God to a journey and he started the journey, this is very important, and he got as far as Ur of the Chaldees, then he died. And God appears to Abraham and says, come on, let's keep going and complete the journey. Because if you're ever going to accomplish anything in life, the most important thing you can do is hand off the baton well. One of the things that evangelical Christians do the worst at today is letting their kids grow up and make their own decisions. Empower your kids to be making wise and godly decisions at a young age and let them go beyond you. I'll never forget the first night. Uh, John used to work 35 hours a week. He was taking 14 credit hours at Dominion Academy and uh, 21 or 22 credit hours at Sinclair at the same time. He was, you know, he was 17 years old. He owned his own car. He made good money already and so forth. And every night I would uh, sit in my recliner and fall asleep, and he'd come in late at night when he'd get off work around 1 a.m., and we would talk about the Lord. And I'll never forget the first night that due to his relationship with uh, Wayne and Sandy McNamara and, and with the scriptures and so forth, he began downloading insights into me 
that I didn't understand. And he'd been serious about Scripture for about two years. And I'd been serious about Scripture for around 33 years. And I'm so shallow that for one brief second, didn't even last a full second, but it was there. It was in my heart. I was like, God, that's not fair. <laughs> and, then, and then I just started crying. Because I said, this is what I prayed for all my life. My son is now passing me in the things of the Lord, and he's become the teacher. Which he has gradually become more and more. So, you know, that's what God is doing with Abraham. Abraham is going further than his father went. And most uh, parents raise their kids so controlling, they don't let their kids do that. You've got to kind of push them out of the nest. Go. Like, I, like my father before me, I told all my kids, you can still live at home when you're 18, but you will pay rent if you do. <laughs> and, and, uh, and you better, you better be out getting a job and getting educated and getting on your own. Because God's called you to do things, and you can't do it staying a, a kid. So I'm not going to make your decisions about clothes or dress or Starbucks or no Starbucks or haircuts or, or what job you're going to take or not take or what you're going to major in college or anything. I'm glad to talk with you about it, but the decision to proceed is yours. So that's what is going on with Abraham. He says, uh, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land I'll show you. I, he doesn't know where it is. You're going to find out where it is as you go. Sound familiar? <laughs> Been a Christian more than 10 minutes? You know, like, I don't know where we're going. <laughs> Follow me. <laughs> Through many dangers, toils, and snares, landmines, and so forth. Okay. Uh, and I'll make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I'll make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And this is what kills movements and so forth when they don't do this. I will bless those who bless you, and I'll curse you who curse you curse you and in all the families of the earth and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed the calling is always for the people of god to take their very tormentors and persecutors and the people who hate them and bring the reconciliation of god to them while they're crucifying jesus he he prays for them as he's carrying his cross the women are crying out over him, and he says, don't cry for me. Cry for your children. He's still other-focused, and he's still doing God the Father's will and serving the people of God on the cross. You know, he, he leads the, the first person that, that comes to Christ is, is one of the murderers that was crucified on his other side. You know, two, two rebellious murderers were crucified with him, and people mistakenly call them thieves. They were actually of the zealot party they were insurrectionists they were murderers and and that was the first one in heaven <laughs> you know he had an altar call right there just come forward and kneel down no. <laughs> i'm having trouble with that one jesus that's okay it's not modern times yet you'll be all right all right let's let's go to jeremiah
Behold, verse 31 of chapter 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Notice one major theme of the Bible is the people of God always break the covenant, but God is still faithful to call them back to himself. How many have been a a Christian long enough that you failed a few times on the way? (laughs) You know, today we tell these testimonies like, I was a miserable sinner, then I became a Christian, I've been so godly since. Nonsense. You liar. (laughs) Sanctification's a process. Right? So, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I'll make with the... So the, the theme, by the way, of groom and bridegroom and, and bride and so forth is not just Christ and the church. It's all through the whole Bible, the people of God with Yahweh. But this, uh, I'll put my law within them, and on their heart I'll write it. This is what we're studying in Galatians right now. And I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor, saying, you should know the Lord. Because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. This is the basis of the Protestant doctrine called the priesthood of all believers, which was a very, very important doctrine in the first few centuries of the church and restored at the Reformation. Today we have this clergy lady thing where we expect the pastor to be like, you know, have all the gifts and all the knowledge and so forth, and we just come to be spoken to and to be entertained. You know, get... No, you're, you're to be equipped to get in the game and do the work of service. That's what apostles and prophets and shepherds are supposed to do. Equip you to know how to lead people to Christ, how to cast out demons, how to counsel, how to disciple. Both your natural children, which hopefully you lead to Christ in such a way that they become your spiritual children, and your spiritual children that you're involved in leading to Christ and discipling. God wants you to bear fruit. And every seed brings forth its own kind. So it's absolutely important what kind of walk with God you have. Uh, now, this passage, though all know me from the least to the greatest, for I'll forgive their iniquity and so forth, is repeated several times in the New Testament, but especially in the book of Hebrews, chapters 8 and 10. Joel 2, 28 and 31, we don't have enough time to get to, but uh, (laughs) we kind of need to, so maybe we will. Uh, We'll we'll just do at least verse 28 and 29. It will come about in that day that I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind, not on some people, not on limited movements here and there, but on all peoples, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your, and, uh, your old men will dream dreams. How, lots of Christians have never prophesied, but that's not normal or scriptural. Your young men will see visions, and even on ma- your male and female servants, I'll pour out my spirit. Now, what displaying blood and fire and columns of smoke means, I'm not going to get into that, but that has nothing to do with the end times. That has to do with the end of Israel as a nation and the birthing of the church as the people of God. As Jesus makes clear in his Mount Olivet Address, Matthew 24. So, uh, 
I think we'll just do with this one in Ezekiel, then we're going to actually end up having one more week on this same subject, because I uh, uh, point E at the bottom of the page. I'm sorry for the mess up today. Uh, we'll have make sure Anvesh trains Daniel in how to discern if I sent the wrong outline to him, because uh, there's actually a process for that you were supposed to have been taught. But um, So... Um, because that happens sometimes. I, I sometimes uh, in too much of a hurry. and I, So it's kind of my bad, but then you, there's a way you can catch it. Um, in any case, next week we'll look at Pentecost, Pinnacle, and we'll look at all those Ps and what they mean. Let's end with Ezekiel 36, 21 through 28. I don't uh, have the whole verse there, uh, or most of it, I guess I do. But I had concern for my holy name. That's a major theme of the whole Bible, by the way. Look for that. If you're going to learn how to do intercessory prayer, if you look at the great intercessors of the Bible, of course, Jesus being the greatest, <laughs> and uh, Moses, a great intercessor, Nehemiah has, and Daniel have some of the best intercessory prayers in the Bible. Look at the pattern of their prayers. In other words, go to Ezra's prayers, Nehemiah's prayers, Daniel's prayers, and, and outline them and lay out what are the things they consistently pray. Because there's principles of intercessory prayers. one of what I call the five types of prayer in the Bible. And the, one of the principles of intercessory prayer is that you're praying to God on behalf of his protecting and glorifying his name. Because God in his great mercy has chosen to tie up the reputation of God with the people of God. And what the culture around us always thinks of God, whether they use Jesus as a curse word or say GD or think badly of Christians and think Christians aren't that important stuff, has nothing to do with how dark the culture is. It has everything to do with how dark the church is. The reason we're living in a massive decline of morals and so forth is not because uh, evil men will wax worse and worse, King James in it, uh, of course they will. That's what sinners are born to be sinners. They, sinners sin. But it, the, the church is supposed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And, it's, and it, when, when the world is getting more decadent around us, it's because the Christianity and the culture is not sufficiently Christian. That's very clear from hundreds and hundreds of Bible passages. Literally hundreds. So, um, I had concern for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. Paul brings up that theme in Romans 2 and 3, that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because the sins of God's people. God's name is always inextricably intertwined with how real the Christianity of his people are. And I'll take you from the nations, which is always a theme of God uh, regathering the people of God and, and ta taking us from being lost in our spiritual Babylon condition. So, you know, that's why Luther wrote a book called, uh, you know, uh, what is it, the, the Babylonian Captivity. I would say that in many ways the church is in Babylonian captivity today. And, uh, and he says, I'll sprinkle water on you. You'll be clean, which speaks of regeneration. I'll cleanse your filthiness from all your idols. We don't talk about idols in the church today, but what it means to come to Christ is not to pray a sinner's prayer, but it's to be turned away from all idols to serve a living and true God, to become an obedient follower of God so that your sins don't have you anymore. God has you. And that's what it means to really be converted. And I'll give you 
You don't have to earn it, a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit within you. And I will, et cetera. So we will, we will kind of review Ezekiel 36 next week since we lost some time today, and then we'll get into those uh, six words that start with a P next week. And uh, it is uh, five minutes past my quitting time, so please be a little quicker on get your coffee and restroom trips in and come on back.